of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the composers, the sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, authors, choreographers, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, and talk to them we have been doing. We're in our eighth year now. And uh, to all of our loyal listeners, thank you very much. To our new listeners, welcome, welcome, welcome. You know, and if you happen to miss the show live, because if you're listening right now, and it's Monday, and it's 11 o'clock on the Pacific Coast, and 2 o'clock on the East Coast, you are hearing us live on AdrenalineRadio.com. But you can always catch... Every single episode of Behind the Lens on BehindTheLensOnline.net 24-7 or on iTunes, Podbean, um, I can't even remember them all. iTunes, Apple, Google, Podbean. It's all, it's all the usual suspect podcast platforms because after the live show, we turn into a podcast. Uh, and you can listen to it as to your heart's content. And you can also find a limited amount of old episodes uh, on the AdrenalineRadio.com website. Generally about what, Pam? Three months worth? Yeah. But we got over eight years worth on BehindTheLensOnline.net, on iTunes, Apple, and all of that. So, uh, if you want to hear some interesting stuff, plus on the website... A lot of uh, I've got movie reviews as well, trailers, all kinds of fun stuff. But and talk about fun stuff. Today is one of the best days of the year, people, because today is National Napping Day. It is also National Pie Day. That wonderful 3.14 ad nauseum, ad nauseum, ad nauseum that you love to learn about in school, in math class. Um, so to have Nap Day and Pie Day. Eat your pie, take a nap. Take advantage of all those great deals that are out there from various pie vendors. Uh, and of course, eat your pie and take a listen to Behind the Lens Online, Behind the Lens Radio Show right now. And very excited about today's show. Number one, joining us at the midpoint of the show is Ben Epstein, um, writer-director of a film, Who Are You People? All right, how many of you growing up, this is what you always wanted to know. You look at the rest of your family and you go, who are you people? I still do it to this day about mine. Um, but this story, it focuses on a 16-year-old girl named, when, named Alex and who, discuss, who doesn't fit in. She's constantly put down by her parents She's worthless. It's, there is no self-esteem building whatsoever. And she has a little miscalculation uh, 
with a professor, a teacher at her boarding school. And then she decides to run away because she has recently found out that the man who's been raising her is not her biological father. And she wanted to go see him. Uh, Needless to say, family drama ensues, but there's a lot of heart. This bodes some great performances. You've got Emma Horvath, um, Devin Sawa, who is also out there right now in Gasoline Alley, um, going toe-to-toe with Bruce Willis. Gasoline Alley is a really good film. Check it out if you get a chance. Uh, Yardley Smith, you know best as the voice of Lisa Simpson. Reed Miller, you just saw in the past couple years in the movie Joe Bell. Uh, John Ailes from Euphoria. And, of course, Alyssa Milano from Charmed and many other things. So it's a great cast that Ben's got, some outstanding performances, but a really interesting story in the way that it's told on Alex's journey. So Ben is going to join us at the midpoint of the show. Uh, But until then, the first half of the show, I love, love talking to the Herzogs, be it Werner, be it Rudolph. I love speaking to them. I love their films, be they narratives or documentaries. No matter what they do, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Especially with Werner, you can always, something weird and wondrous always pops up no matter what he's doing. Um, But now, father and son come together for Last Exit Space. This is one of the coolest documentaries that you will ever see about space and space colonization. One of the things I love about Rudolph, and we connect so wonderfully on this point every time we chat, we, we both, we go down rabbit holes. And Rudolph got these ideas about space travel, space colonization. And, you know, just how close are we? We see it in the movies about space colonization. Uh, People talk about it. We've got Bezos. We've got Virgin. We've got Musk. Um, So how long before we are out there inhabiting someplace? Will it be Mars? Will it be somewhere else? I mean, you look at the the things that Kepler uh, has delivered to us. The new things that we're finding, galaxies and stars that we never even knew existed. Um, so it bodes some interesting questions. You know, we have over 7 billion hum- humans on the earth right now. And as we all know, climate change, resource overconsumption, resources are dwindling. Um, but man has always, going back to the days of of, you know, caveman, and then the early Sumerians, the Egyptians, everybody has looked to the stars, wondering what is there. And this is what Rudolph explores, is colonization and space travel. But it's not just hypotheticals. He, as he went down his rabbit hole, and you hear him talk about this in this pre-recorded interview you're going to hear, he is talking to the mo- some of the most elite and some of the most unique experts in the, in the various disciplines and areas that we have to be concerned with when we think about colonizing space. 
Number one, one of the primary interviews is with Mike Fole, a NASA astronaut, and he survived the Mir explosion a number of years ago in space. Lucianne Walkowitz, who's a noted astronomer. Taylor Genovese, a space anthropologist. Dr. Doug Hoffman, those little rovers up on Mars? He's the man. He's the expert. Then we get Simon Dubay, a space sexologist. Yes, people, this is one of the concerns about colonization. If we're going to something light years away that's going to take 5,000 years, it's going to need to be reproduction on ships in space. Um, very interesting. And, of course, one of my favorites who he speaks with, uh, and also a futurist. He talks to a futurist. He even goes back, and there are, is a group of people here on Earth in South America who believe that they are aliens. So Rudolph covers everything, including talking with Michael Dozier, who's a physicist at CERN in Switzerland, who works with the particle accelerator colliders and antimatter fuel. And I've spoken with Michael and some of the other people involved with the particle accelerator colliders in the past. Um, always fascinating. And to see that interwoven here with discussions on antimatter fuel makes it even more fascinating. So instead of listening to me prattle on, you can listen to Rudolph and I prattle on, uh, as well as talking about his latest book, Ghosts of Berlin. Um, so without any further ado, Rudolf Herzog talking about Last Exit Space. Hey, Debbie. How are you, Rudolph? Very well, indeed. Thank you. I'm, uh, how are you? I am fine, and I am so happy to talk to you again. It's been a while since we chatted about how to fake a war. Yeah, I remember you, Debbie. That's right. That's right. So great. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, you're keeping track of my stuff. Well, I'm really honored. And after we talked, I bought the book Ghosts of Berlin Stories. Oh my God, that is so good. Your satire and the tension that you create is just fabulous. I devoured that book. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. That's really great. You know, I never never get feedback for books. You know, people never, like if they like it, if they don't, I never hear anything. Nobody writes an email and says, listen, I kind of liked it. So it's great to actually hear someone who's read it and enjoyed it. You know what I'm saying? We, so rare. We got off our, our Skype call that day and I immediately, I told you I'd do it and I did it. I went on Amazon and I ordered the book right away. And as soon as it came... That weekend, I sat and I read it cover to cover. Could not put it down. Super, Debbie. I'm, I'm really glad you did. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. And now, I want you to know I have now watched Last Exit Space twice already. Oh, wow. Okay. This is fascinating, Rudolph. Fascinating. I was riveted watching this and the way you take us through every possible consideration that we don't even think about. I mean, you bring in a geneticist, you've got the space sexologist, I, <laughs> you've got a space anthropologist, futurist, you've got citizen orbiters. Uh, we hear from uh, Lucienne, uh, 
her work with Kepler and what Kepler's given us is amazing. And then the whole idea of hibernation and then a form of cryogenics to prepare us for a 5,000-year journey. Just fascinating. Where did you get the idea for this documentary? Um, well, listen, I mean, I think originally I, I must have seen some kind of uh, 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 kind of press release by um, Elon Musk or SpaceX or whatever about their plans to go out and colonize other planets or put cities on Mars and so on. So that kind of get me started me thinking, it's like, is this even possible, you know? And, uh, and then I kind of dug in more deeply and I thought, well, if, even if it was possible, if it turned out to be possible, um, should we be doing it? I mean, that is a legitimate question, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. should, should we be using our resources to try to get to our neighboring planets or even you know, uh, exoplanets, pla planets in, in other constellations. Um, and, you know, you find out, well, <laughs> there are actually people out there who are putting a lot of time and energy into working out how to do it. Um, even even going to Alpha Centauri, you yeah. know, like 4.2 light years away. There are people are thinking about, like, traveling out 5,000 years, like an, as a multi-generational trip. And these aren't... These aren't Wackos. There are, there are people like genuine scientists working for NASA, working for major universities and so forth. So it got me fascinated. So I think that's the original thing was just reading something as, as I do. And then, and then I, I started on this journey. You went down the rabbit hole, that's for sure. Oh, my God. Where do you, once you read that, where do you even start unearthing all of the people that you have that brings so much to this documentary because there is such a plethora of scientists out there but you've got some really specialized areas here so I'm curious how you went about finding these particular subject areas within the idea of space colonization so that you could yeah, well, talk to them yeah, I guess writing it or researching it is genuinely like going down a rabbit hole and I'm frankly, Debbie, I'm just driven by my own curiosity. I'm a sort of hedonist, and whatever seems quirky and interesting, I follow. So, like, for instance, you mentioned a space sexologist. <laughs> basically this guy who kind of thinks, like, well, if we were to go on an intergenerational trip, like, man a space or crew a spaceship to go out to Alpha Centauri travel for 5,000 years, obviously the crew wouldn't be the crew setting out, wouldn't be the same crew that it would arrive, but it would be the children's children, children of whoever started out. But that means that they would have to bear children on the trip so therefore, you know, what about incest, though? Because uh, you, know, you wouldn't be able to put, like, you know, thousands and thousands on such a ship, but it would be a, a, probably a small crew. So how do you deal, deal with that? <laughs> they don't turn into some kind of mutants on the way, and they, they might arrive, but they've turned into mutants. So they're li literally like this, the space exologist who's thinking about that. Or, you know, do we use... Do we use a bank of fertilized eggs that we take along and implement that on the journey and so forth? And I just like find these people and I think, my boy, I mean, you know, this just has to go in. And for some reason, I, just, I, I can't tell you why, but it's just sort of like, this is so out there that it just has to be in the film. But I just, I'm attracted to these kind of quirky, interesting things. And um, anyway, it's just my taste. So, um, 
Um, I, I just follow the rabbit through the rabbit hole, and and and, um, and these these people kind of pop up for some reason. They sure do, but you know, I love going down those rabbit holes as well, Rudolph. And the, the way you tie this together with your structure, with your through line, we start. You give us this beautiful imagery, the stars, and we've got the earth, and we meet a futurist to begin with which is perfect we're looking to the future because this isn't something that we're going to do you know next week or next year and then from there you spin it off with this great construct not only with making sense with going from the futurists to the weekend orbiters the suborbital people you've got doug hoffman talking about who is an expert on rovers on another planet and ex and terrain and you keep moving through, and of course you bring on, you know, Elon and Bezos and and Virgin, but you have it tied so well together. I can see how you went down the rabbit hole. You found point A. Something came up there. Oh, well, I got to go check this out. Oh, I got to go check this out. It is so cohesive and cogent, Rudolph. I love the structure how you how you came up with this it's fascinating well the structure is actually kind of the first thing i came up with strangely enough because i thought well you know you'd obviously start you'd obviously start with the dream like looking out at the sky and uh, wondering at the billions of tiny specks out there and you know wanting to explore wanting to go out there and find out what what it is you know what's up there so I think the dream is the beginning, the natural beginning of such an endeavor. And then uh, then looking out, well, what's in our immediate vicinity? We've been to the moon, which is an incredible feat. But then like, what about sort of like going to Mars? How realistic is that actually? Because we kind of have seen it in many science fiction films, but like, is it actually that easy? Or like, can we ever, why is it taking so long? And you realize that, oh, well, actually out there, well, from, apart from the obvious that there's no air out there in a vacuum, it's also like highly, you know, there's so much radiation out there, you get fried. So if you talk to the people on Mars now, uh, obviously NASA's up there with rovers, you know, like in the film, they tell you, listen, um, the, the measurements we're taking, that's, it's, it's bad. I mean, the radiation is bad. And if you were to go there, you'd have to have... Uh, 10 meters of water or liquid hydrogen around your spaceship to shield you from the radiation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're like like a little fish in a goldfish tank. So mm -hmm. and then and then I thought, well, if it's so difficult to go to Mars, and if Mars is so inhospitable, maybe we should go to some sort of other place that's um, further out, but that might be more like Earth. And as it happens, and Lucien Walkowitz explains this, the fantastic astronomer, is that yeah. we're in the middle of probably one of the biggest revolutions in science in history, and certainly in our generation, uh, that, you know, from when I was young, not knowing if there are any planets out there that might be like Earth or any planets at all, for that matter of fact, beyond our solar system, to actually realizing that there are millions out there, probably more planets than stars that we see. Mm -hmm. And this, like, literally happened in our lifetime through the Kepler mission and so forth. So there are many places that might be habitable, 
Um, but then getting there is the problem because some of them are so many light years away. I mean, you, it would be a hundred thousand yeah. years to get there, you know. So like, but anyway, I, I do take a look at that and see like, hmm, well, what would, would, would one have to do to, to accomplish the feat? But I, I'm afraid some of it's quite sobering in the film. Like I look at antimatter as a drive for, 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 for a spaceship. Mm -hmm. So matter because that if antimatter collides with matter it's like pure energy so it's like would be great for propulsion a couple of kilo of antimatter would probably take you to the next uh, constellation and um yeah i spoke to the to the people who actually harvest antimatter because antimatter is being created uh, on earth today yeah. at CERN at the you know in switzerland they were the with a huge collider they they create antimatter um, and they store it, uh, and they can even store it for quite a time. It's just such small quantities, and it would literally, for them to manufacture enough antimatter to get a South of Centauri, they would have probably had to start at the beginning of the universe, <laughs> and the process would go beyond the existence of the universe into the future. Yeah. To get us enough rules to get us so, like, good luck on that one. We're probably better off walking there, as some Anne explains. So anyway, some of it's sobering, but um, anyway, it's, uh, it's a philosophy, the philosophical film as well, as you might have seen, and kind of I'm just wondering if, even if it were possible, and we have the antimatter, you know, should we be doing it? I think that is a legitimate question as well. And it and you do throughout this, you plant that seed. Should we do this? Because we also get into the discussion on corporate colonization, and that's very very interesting. You know what happens if Elon or Bezos do colonize something? Who controls it? Who's pulling the strings? Is it to their benefit? even if it's not safe for whoever is there if something happens. And you feed this in. You interweave this so beautifully through the interviews that you have and the considerations. So it gets you thinking. And, of course, throughout all of this, your transitions I love because your, tra your visual transi transitions between the different aspects of travel, space travel and colonization, you take it, you root it, bring us back to Earth. And we it's like driving in a car. We've got a windy road. We've got trees. We've got blue skies. You keep reminding us about the Earth. While we're looking up and ahead, you remind us where we are now. And that ties in so beautifully to your culmination in the third act about taking care of our own planet the existential threats that we face here and now. And it is just so artfully crafted. And the visuals that you have, I, oh my God, your visuals are stunning. The visuals are stunning, Rudolph. Even just simple interviews, Henning has shot them so beautifully. And then this is a real marriage between Henning's work and Barbara's editing. Um, to put this together. But I love how you tie all these things together. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Debbie. That's very nice of you to say that. And I, I think I think one of the things that's kind of, I wanted to dawn on people a bit is that the journey that we're undertaking is actually, is already the coded conclusion in a way. Mm -hmm. Sounds a bit off, but like sort of like the, 
the beauty of planet Earth and the, the deserts, the jungle, you know, the streets of New York, all of that add together to, to just a kind of symphony of the Earth, if you will, of our own home planet, which is so wonderfully habitable and which has sweet oxygen, which we can breathe even in the most inhospitable places like deserts or like the tops of mountains and so forth. So I wanted to, wanted to kind of see that in or, or like that you would, that in, in the end it kind of dawns on you, well, actually the trip we've taken is actually the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of a, an idea very much from the start that that would be coded into the, into the film structurally. And um, obviously Henning is so good doing kind of landscapes. I mean, unbelievable good eye yes. for that. So it was a bit of a no-brainer to, to, to choose him for that. And um, anyway, these people, like Barbara as well, I've worked with, I mean, Henning I've worked with for 20 years, or mm-hmm. 22 years now. Barbara I've worked with for like 15. So we've done a lot of projects together as well as a composer I've worked with on, on other projects. So yeah, they're, they're really the right people to kind of unlock that in a way. I love the fact that you include in here the benevolent aliens on Earth. Late in the third act, you do you do include aliens. You include a section on on aliens. I thought that was really interesting that you would put that in here because up to that point we're very scientific, and then you get you tap into that thread that so many people connect with. The idea of aliens. And I just love that. I thought that was so fabulous. Yeah, because they what they propose is actually quite sane and it's quite scientific. So mm-hmm. they, they, these are people out in Brazil who um, see themselves as, as descendants of, an, of aliens, of an alien species. Um, so it's actually kind of a, a colony of aliens on Earth. Um, and I chatted with them and I actually saw that they're probably... You know, they actually, what they say is makes a lot of sense, which is that they, they just believe that their molecular structure of their bodies, um, and auras for that matter, is just not made to be out there in space. It's not made for space travel, and therefore, like, one shouldn't go to these planets. They shouldn't even go back to their own planet. So, like, I thought, well, well, finally someone has got some sense. Um, <laughs> And of course, hitchhiking with aliens is just a non-starter as well. But uh, I just thought it would be interesting to explore, and uh, I was surprised that, you know, what they say makes a lot of sense. It just doesn't, it's it's not going to fly. Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense. And that's one of the great things that you do, Rudolph. Everything in here makes perfect sense. There is nothing in this film that is outlandish, or outside the realm of comprehension. Everything makes perfect sense when you sit and you listen and you look. I don't think I have ever seen, because I'm such a space geek anyway, and I don't think I've ever seen anything lay this out so succinctly as you have done here. Oh, great. Well, that's a wonderful compliment, Debbie. I mean, yeah, and again, I was just driven by my curiosity. I weaved some things in which actually... They're not, you know, they're not strictly space exploration. Like, right. for instance, I thought, well, maybe we could freeze humans, like kind of put them in a deep freeze or some sort of suspended animation, so you could send them on a spaceship for like thousands of years and follow them somehow to destination. And I just thought, well, you know, is that is is there anybody out there who might be doing this? And I found out, well, actually, you know, 
it's, it's, it's surgeons who are doing this for real mm-hmm. at this point. So that a couple of places in the world that know how to do this. And I went to Baltimore to to speak to some surgeons who um, often have cases of severe gunshot wounds. Yeah. And the problem with that is that people, the, the survival rate is just 7%. So people just, they bleed to death and you cut, there's just not enough time to fix the wounds. So it's, it's a big problem. And they uh, have devised a method where they basically pump out your blood uh, if you come in and they pump in a very cold, uh, saline solution. Saline? Do you say that the salty water? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but you pop that in, uh, and it's, it, it cools you down to 20 degrees Celsius, which is I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. It's very cold, frankly. So they put you in a state of hypothermia, stop your heart, and they buy 40 minutes of time like this. So they actually do create this kind of frozen, suspended animation. I thought, golly, my God, that's that's unbelievable. And they they did it for us. So they, I, I I went to some of these people, and they said, like, we'll do it for you. So they simulated it on the dummy, and that's the problem. so. I sort of like, um, I went down the rabbit hole and went to some places that actually don't strictly have to do with space exploration, but they 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 could be highly resonant if you really wanted to do yes. it. And it's just amazing to see what, what humans, what we are capable of. I mean, it's just unbelievable, this. Oh, very much so. I have to ask you about having your dad narrate. I love his narration. But now having spoken with your dad many times over the years, I'm very curious, Rudolph, did you write out the script for him to read? And if you did... Did he actually follow it, or did he inject his own Werner take on it? Yeah, uh, the text is completely mine. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's just like during the recording, there might have been something like a sentence that was a bit difficult for me. Of course, he's not a native speaker. Right. Like myself, a native speaker, so we, we, we change a couple of things on the fly just to make it easier for him sometimes. But the text is entirely mine. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I had to find something that would make sense for him to read. So for him to that, his voice actually made sense, ties it up with. And uh, because my way of filmmaking is is different to his. Yeah. And nevertheless, they had to be married up uh, in a way there. And um, I think it really worked out. I think he... But he know I, I you know he would have he 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 just uh, read it the way it is. I mean he just used my words and they somehow make sense from his mouth and I really think that it draws you in. And he, I mean he had this passion for the idea from the very very first moment I, it came out of my mouth. He was so into it, and I think you feel that oh. um, when you when you see the film and when you listen to his narration. Absolutely you do, and it doesn't surprise me with his passion for things like volcanoes and and all of these things around the Earth, um, that he would be just as passionate about space and the different aspects of that. I think, uh, I agree with you, he draws you right in. His voice is so distinctive, his cadence, and it's you can't stop. Between the imagery that you have and hearing your dad, it's impossible to not watch this. I'm telling you, it's impossible. And as soon as you start getting into the science and getting into all the the moving parts of potential colonization, 
uh, somewhere in space. It is beyond fascinating, which is why I had to watch it a second time. I There's so much there, and it's so spectacular that uh, I think it's it's wonderful. I would love to see you do more like this, Rudolph. Um, yeah, well, I've, I'm sure I'm going to keep going, but it, I'm not sure it's going to be another space film. I think I've kind of <laughs> said what I wanted to say, so and I don't tend to backtrack. I, right. I, I, I think, you know, I, I just get I just get overwhelmed and just uh, 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 intrigued by the next thing, and then I'm next down the next rabbit hole. So um, I think it's not going to be about space ever again, maybe. Um, it might be, but, like, it would have to be something very, very different to the last exit for me to, 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 to tackle the same subject matter again. Um, but, yeah, it'll be something else in the spirit. Yeah. I, I can promise you that, Debbie. Oh, I can't. And that was Rudolf Herzog talking about Last Exit Space. And there's still a little bit more to that interview that you can hear later tonight on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Um, but Last Exit Space, I love this documentary. It is so fascinating. Uh, and, of course, oh, come on. A space sexologist, people? Where have you ever heard about that before? So it is on Discovery Plus right now. So if you don't have Discovery Plus, this may be, just seeing this documentary may make it worth the one-week free trial or the $4.99 a month that they charge. Um, you cannot go wrong with this documentary. It is fabulous. And I can't wait to see what Rudolph brings us next, be it a film or in a book. Uh, and again, I mentioned at the top, Ghosts of Berlin. You really, check it out. It's sarcastic, it's dark, it's a thriller. Uh, and it's very Rudolph Herzog. All right, we're going to shift gears right now. And we are moving on to welcoming... Ben Epstein is joining us. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? I'm very happy to be speaking with you. Now, is it Epstein, Epstein? Yeah, it's, it's Epstein. Not the, not the best last name to have in 2022, but that is how you say it. I think it's fine. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so happy. We had to do some juggling, um, you know, from... You were originally scheduled a few weeks ago, then something wasn't working for me, and I think something may not have been working for you, so we moved you to today, uh, and I'm so excited to finally have you here to talk about who are you people, um, because this is something every single one of us, be it in jest, be it seriously, at some point in our lives, we look at our family and just shake our heads and go, who are you people? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a title that definitely asks the question. Um, the minute I, I think Annie may have told you, or, or she can tell you, the minute I saw this, uh, the first thing I thought was, oh my God, I've got to see a film called this. I ask this every single day of my life about my family. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and That's great. And so when I watch this, wow, it's not a comedy. This could very easily have been done as a comedy. But you sure. you do this in a serious vein, but 
what you very adeptly do, Ben, is you bring out some of the inherent lighter, humorous notes of life that just come from day in, day out. And we really see that play out, uh, particularly with our, our protagonist, our lead actress, uh, Emma Horvath, as Alex. And, yes. you know, you see her as a you know, 16-year-old. We all think we can conquer the world when we're 16. Sure. And that we're right. And that <laughs> it's, yeah. you did it, too. Don't tell me otherwise. I'm sure. Sh- <laughs> hey, I've kept 16-year-old Ben pretty close to me emotionally, and that's how I was able to write and direct this movie. So, yes, I remember that feeling very well. But, and that's... That, in, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, that's where we get the lighter moments of life. Mm-hmm. Um, is from, it's no holds barred, open mouth, insert foot, uh, run off and do whatever you're going to do. And you don't think about any other of the ramifications or the repercussions afterwards. Because, heck, you're 16. Why should you? Um, not finished growing yet. <laughs> that's it. You know, so yeah. I've, I've got to ask you, Ben, because this is the kind of film, and because you take the, the more dramatic approach with this film, you can't make this film without life experience behind you. Um, sure. I... I firmly believe having watched this and what you are saying in this film, it has to be done. The kind of film that has to be made by somebody with life experience behind them, which you have. So what, what led you to this story? Where did, did you wake up at breakfast and go, God, I really wonder about my family. I need to write about them. Well, I think that's a great question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I wasn't saying anything. I want to. I want. Okay, I want to. I want to he- hear this answer. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a great question, and I think that the genesis for this really came from remembering what it was like to be 16 and having that moment of realization that my parents were not just these sort of omniscient beings who governed my life, but they were people with their own histories and their own aspirations and their own blind spots and flaws. And this kind of revelation just hit me really hard at a time when my brain was expanding intellectually, but emotionally, I still had some catching up to do. So I can look back at my old journals or diaries or things I was writing at the time and really remembering that mindset. So the actual facts of this move, or the, rather the actual circumstances of this story have Virtually nothing to do with my own story. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever. That, nothing that traumatic ever really happened to me. Nothing. My parents aren't the, aren't uh, Alex's parents, Carrie and Judith. There's not. Uh, I didn't grow up in Portland, but I remember the emotional truth of that feeling of what is going on. Who are these people? Who am I? And and then thinking what would happen if you took that very universal feeling of coming of age and and crossed it with a, a larger external mystery that's just sort of there to smack her in the face. And that's where the genesis emotionally for the movie came from. Mm-hmm. Now, I find it interesting that you make our protagonist, our, you know, our 16-year-old in pursuit of trouble or enlightenment. We're not sure which, um, mm-hmm. but you make her, it's female versus male. 
And yeah. I found that interesting. Why did you go with Alex as a female embarking on this discovery? Do guys not really want to embark and do things like that? They just want to go hang out and be stupid? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that I grew you know, it might not be a shock, and my, my wife would verify that I was probably a more, you know, I'm a, probably a more sensitive-minded man Okay. a lot of guys who are more typically jocks, and mm-hmm. I think that was true when I was 16 as well. So even though I'm very much a dude, I think that my <laughs> um, sensibility might skew a little bit more feminine, mm-hmm. and my interests do as well. And I just thought there was an interesting time in, in, a, in a young woman's life, which I remember hearing about from my friends at the time and what I've observed, where the world starts viewing women differently and viewing girls differently at a time when they're trying to figure out their relationship with an adult world, mm-hmm. especially when the mystery about who her parents are involves some very, very heavy aspects of sex. And yes. I thought that that was more powerful from a female perspective than from a guy. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree, Um, but I know that there are plenty of filmmakers out there, plenty of writers. They would have maybe opted to have it from the guy's perspective or shy away from that completely because guys aren't very good at conveying emotion most of the time, especially at 16. Most of us aren't. (laughs) I I have tried a lot to be the type who who is, and the joke among my friends and family is is that... uh, I'm never lacking for emotional insight or navel-gazing, so <laughs> I think that that probably found its way into this movie as well. Oh, my God. Well, one, how difficult was it crafting this script? Did you have any actors in mind? Um, because it, you have an interest, you've got interesting subplots happening here, interesting scenarios unfolding. We have Alex. Then we have her biological father of Carl, who is living with Sarah, who is so entrenched in her faith and in helping Carl from demons of his past. And Reed Miller is a standout. The chemistry Reed has with Emma uh, is just, as he plays uh, Arthur, is just amazing. And you tap into... You tap into another sub-plot there, a sub-emotional plot with the character of Arthur and matching up Arthur and Alex. Then we've got Alex's parents of Carrie and Judith that, okay, if I had, if you know, granted, I will admit that, yeah, it was, my mother was always the first one to say, you can't do anything, you can't do anything right, you are worthless. And... Mm -hmm. I grew up with that. So seeing this play out here, I had great sympathy for Alex, been in her shoes. And sure. if I had, you know, at, it, when I was 16, if I had had the same situation as Alex was faced with, man, I would have taken off. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gone looking for answers. Yeah, I... I... I, I mean, that's such a great question, and I could literally talk for hours about any one of those points. I'll say this about Carrie and Judith. I don't think that they were ill-intentioned, or, and I don't think they're abusive. I think they just were a little scared of her and what she represented. And I think they didn't deal with the, the tough questions that 
why yeah. Alex came to be in the first place because they were so it was so hard and, and tough for them to face, which is really true of people who have been through the kinds of things that they've been through. Yeah. And I don't think it's anyone's fault, but I do think that, that the movie does invite them and compel them towards accountability. Well, and so, so I, I, yeah, that, that's one of the things I felt about them. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and one of the great things that you do is you, we see the family dynamic in the first act of the film. And we see how Alex is pretty much rebuffed. And when the family, because Carrie and Judith have twins um, that are much younger than Alex, but the way you have structured this, working with your cinematographer, working with Robert Lamb, um, you have it staged so that there is distance. That there yep. is the family unit of four, and then there's Alex. Yep. So you you see it, you feel it, that whether it's just mom and daughter, dad and daughter, teen angst that's interfering here, but you immediately get the sense at the at the table when even the the younger siblings are not looking up to the older sister, and that staging is great. Uh, Oh, thank you. Yes, we. We were very specific about what kind of lenses we use when we were shooting Alex versus other characters. You know, she's a char- she's our point of view. So I, I look at this movie as being a very subjective story and mm-hmm. it's told subjectively visually. And that was something that Bobby um, or Robert, as he's officially credited, uh, and I did was very much about um, trying to uh, evolve that perspective starting with Alex sort of in her interiority and then gradually revealing the interiority of other characters as more secrets come out and we get to know them more and what troubles and plagues them more. So those were all very deliberate choices. I'm so glad that that, you know, that it, you felt those things because it was something we wanted, you know, the, the audience to feel rather than you know, that you, you always want, you're always going for the emotion when you're telling mm-hmm. a story. So that our hope was that the audience would feel Alex, Alex's isolation. Well, and this is kudos to you and Bobby uh, in the visual design of this film, the visual grammar and the visual tonal bandwidth, because we also, you have a lot of scenes of Alex in isolation in her room, um, elsewhere, around town. She's alone a lot, and for much of this, initially, in that first act, as we're transitioning into the second act, it's very claustrophobic in her room. She, she has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. It's the walls are closing in on her. That metaphor, we feel it. Um, the visual metaphor is fantastic. And as she ventures oh, and as she ventures out and looking for her biological father, we see things start to open out. We see her outside. We see her on a bicycle. She's riding, she's pedaling, she's just going everywhere. And you go wider on, wider on the shot. You've got a lighter visual tone with actually lightness from the sky, from the sun. And, of course, I could tell you we're kind of shooting in, in sort of kind of bad weather, shall we say, for part of this <laughs> film. Um, you could tell from the skies. But I love how you use that camera in order to convey emotion, metaphorically convey it from beginning to end. And it really comes into play again when we get into the third act with Alex and Carl. And we see their journey that they're making 
and then to have Carrie and Judith come back into play. And you do something totally different every time you are shooting Yardley Smith as Sarah, um, which I found really interesting. Talk to me about how you came up with this visual grammar for these specific scenarios because it helps fuel this the emotionality of this story so well that's i love that question uh what we did we actually did a lot of this in prep where i went through and found color palettes for the various locations our various sections of the movie mm-hmm. so the beginning of the movie in portland is bluer yep it's cooler the palette is a little bit more claustrophobic as you said um, as we, as Alex starts to go to a place that she has internally idealized before she's even arrived, it gets warmer. It gets a little more open. Um, we tended to use wider lenses up close with Alex to really get in her face and really be in her, her purview. Mm-hmm. And as, and, and sometimes longer lenses for other characters, especially, you know, Carl is often shot at a distance, shot yeah. in shadow, shot with a long lens early in the movie because He's a mystery, and he doesn't want to open up. Uh, Sarah is, has a similar... She's more willing to open. She's more receptive to Alex being there, but she still has her own boundaries as well. But as the movie progresses, we start to see things more from other characters' perspectives, and we start to move in closer with them using the same sort of lenses we were only using for Alex at the beginning for close-up stuff like that. Mm-hmm. By the end of the movie, when we get to sort of more of the darker reveals... We, start to, we started to look at the same spaces and find ways to shoot them differently. So when you're in uh, Carl's garage at the, uh, you know, in the last scene when he's on the phone with Alex, mm-hmm. it's, a much, it's a much harsher type of lighting. It's redder. Yeah. It, it feels darker. It, it's more dangerous than when you see them connecting, getting painting supplies, talking about their past, etc., so we were really conscious of the progression. And, and I will say that uh, Bobby Lamb is an amazing collaborator, but I also wanted to shout out uh, our production designer, Sean Roney, and our costume designer, Julie Carnahan, because I really consider the three of them to be the brain trust of the visual, or the visual custodians of the movie. You know, we all mm-hmm. talked about it together and we all had a very clear vision for it, but they really they really did so much with, with not a lot of resources. And I, I am you know, just thrilled and awed and grateful for them all the time. Yeah, the production design is very key here because when you look at the first act and you look at Alex's home with Carrie and Judith and the twins, um, it's very specific. You see money, um, you know, and then you see the difference between going to a blue-collar home, such as that of Sarah and Carl. Then you see you have something totally different with production design with Carl's father, in yep. his double-wide trailer, or it might be a single-wide, yep. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the production design is very, it's very economically telling. Very socioeconomically yeah. telling. And that really bodes well, because it also, for from Alex's perspective, if you think about it, you're wondering... Well, why the heck does she want to be here when she has all these creature comforts over here? Uh, And I can easily see people wondering that. Because for some people, it's all about the things you have, not the thing that you have, meaning yourself. 
Uh, and I love the distinction that people are able to make if they're looking, if they see it. Yes. And I think an environment was a big consideration every time we were shooting any scene. And, you know, we shot the movie very much out of order. You know, the Portland yeah. stuff was what we shot last. And in fact, the very first shot of the movie is the very last thing we shot on set, um, just because that's kind of indie filmmaking. But <laughs> we were always very conscious of where we were in the environment. And I think that there's sort of three distinct places. There's, you know, the Portland home, Carl and Sarah's home, and then Bo's home. And Bo's home is really... As soon as Alex gets there, she's like, this is probably a bad idea and I shouldn't be here. Yeah. And we, we were, <laughs> you know, it was miserable because it started to rain a lot that night, but it actually wound up really helping all of the scenes that are in Bro's trailer because it really conveys this sense of danger and sort of sadness and you're getting almost assaulted by the elements and, yeah. and uh, the, the, the loneliness and fear that Alex is encountering there. And the, int- the fun, the interesting part of that se- of those scenes is that Bo's guy, he starts the fire with the lighter fluid outside. Mm-hmm. It's teeming rain all around. So you almost get the sense like Alex is, she's plunging herself into the bowels of hell. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 we really wanted to motivate the lighting from that fire uh, because I liked the idea. Well, for one, we wanted to set it up so that, you know, it, we, we've established it and Carl can dump all his stuff in there at the end. But also because it really gives this, sort of, you know, you're in the you're in a scary place. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, fire is a great light source because it's always unpredictable and it's flickering and it's not, it's not consistent. So it gives you something really unnerving about it. It can be warm, but in this case it wasn't. And, of course, you've got Bo sitting there with the whole, you know, bottle of lighter fluid, and who knows when he's going to squirt more on the fire. <laughs> yeah. He's an angry person. That's what I kept, I know, kept wondering. I, it's, right, it's sitting right there as, you know. Is he going to pick yeah. it up and start at building the fire even bigger? Um, but, you know, another aspect of this film, and I am so, so, so thrilled, you went with Aaron Zygman as your composer because he has the depth. You take a look at, every, at everything his, he's done, his entire resume, musical resume, from John Q up to The Best of Me, to the comedy of the peoples and meet the Browns or the war with grandpa. He has the ability and he's, I know he's classically trained. Um, and, he's amazing. Oh, I adore Aaron. I've spoken with him before. Mm. I adore him and his talent, his ability to capture emotion with instrumentality and with composition, but knowing you know, he has a be- a great understanding of specific emotion and how to capture it musically. And he does that beautifully here because we've got vacillating emotions happening through this whole film. But the music never overpowers the driving force of the story in Alex's POV. Oh, yeah. Aaron is just great. And I think that, you know, we had a lot of conversations about the film mirroring Alex's emotional journey and that because you know one of the things that you learn day one of film school I guess is that the camera and the music don't lie the characters lie all the time but the camera and the care and the music doesn't lie so I said to Aaron we are going to play the subtext of whatever Alex is feeling in every scene and then eventually 
he found this incredible way to weave together all these themes. So mm-hmm. I remember the first time I, I saw the climactic scene at, that we were just t- discussing at Bo's mm-hmm. uh, trailer towards the end. And he had taken a sort of sad Carl theme, but he'd also put in something with a little bit more adrenaline and heft, along with Alex's theme. And they come together in this very harmonious, almost effortless way to really convey the emotion of, of not only Alex's experience, but also what is objectively happening for the other characters in this scene. He's just really writes from emotion, and it's not saccharine, but it is it yeah. is emotional, and that was what I was going for. So I, I was just, you know, that without all these collaborators, the film would just be a PDF. So, you know, Aaron <laughs> is another thing that really, really uh, elevates it. You know, for this kind of film, though, it is. It's indie filmmaking. Um, it's getting more and more difficult to get financing, funding for films. And a story like this, this is not something that people are going to jump right out and say, I want to give you money. You know, <laughs> ha- you know, you don't have, you've got star power here, but you don't have huge star power uh, coming in. Yeah. But how do you... Well, we actually were financed. We got the financing first. I mean, you know, you had asked, uh, you had asked earlier, and I didn't get to answer the question about... Um, about the script evolution. The first draft of the script was written over 10 years ago. Wow. And I just, and it was a, a project that for whatever reason, I just never quite wanted to let go of, despite the world saying, maybe you should let go of this, but I didn't <laughs> want to. And I think that these movies are tricky to finance. A lot of yeah. them is that, you know, you get foreign sales investors based on star power, but you can't get stars unless the movies are, you know, unless you have the financing. So it becomes a catch 22. Mm-hmm. We had some, you know, actors come and go attachments, come attachments, leave, you know, um, I was doing other things. I had a, you know, to, I had a couple TV shows that I created and was running those. So, you know, things kept popping up, but I never, I, I always was refining this script. Eventually, we opted for the field of dreams approach to say, if we build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. If we get the financing, we will get the, get the cast. And that is what happened. Um, I will credit uh, our producers, Toby Louie and Jordan Foley for saying that's what we should do. And Jordan brought in paperclip and Yardley came on because of that. And it's one of those things where we, we just figured that we, we we figured out what we could make the movie for. We got very, very, um, specific and deliberate about the choices we made going into it. You know, I cut a couple of scenes from the script that were going to be too expensive to film, mm-hmm. and we just focused on, 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 on biting off exactly what we could chew, mm-hmm. and planning for it meticulously, and trying to understand exactly what was going to go into those those choices. And so that's how we got the movie made. But indie movies are tough right now, and the stuff that you know. The, the, the saving grace between now and what must have been 25 years ago is that the, the technology is so good now. Yes. And the stuff you can do is really impressive with not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the cameras are just, they, they're, they're better. The DV, or rather, um, digital is, is great versus shooting on actual 35 millimeter film. So we were able to make it by being deliberate and being very careful. Well, and I think one advantage here with, uh, with who are you people is that you have a television background and mm-hmm. a television background you're shooting faster you've got less to work with you've got to be more precise in what you're doing uh, yeah. and I think that worked to your benefit here because you knew the hurdles and pitfalls going into this 
of what you might face. Yeah. So let's circumvent them before. Yeah, you know, what we say, we, you know, I, I also had a, uh, an incredible assistant director named uh, Jared uh, Briley on this, and he did such a good job of helping me figure out exactly what we could bite off. I also uh, used to AD a little bit back in the day, so I have a sense of what we can, how many pages we can shoot in a day as well. But Jared really helped us figure that out. And I think that, uh, yes, it's about knowing exactly what the shots are. Do you need to get, like sometimes on TV shows, they say you need to get, you know, a master and you need to get a medium and you need to get a close-up of everybody who's talking. And that drives me nuts. So sometimes I would say on, on a shoot like this, you know, I know we only need a wide shot. We don't need a close-up of, you know, um, when Alex first shows up to Carl's work, there's no close-up of Carl saying, you've seen it, go home, because I know that in that part of the movie, we don't need a close-up of Carl. So yeah. that avoided a setup, but it was also an artistic choice. So it was really about for, uh, prepping and planning as much as it was the actual shooting. Because then sometimes you plan it, you know what your intention is, and then you have to throw it all out and improvise, which happened a number of times. Too. <laughs> but for the most part, we went in having a good sense of what our, our goal was. Well, I have to tell you, first narrative feature for you, This is, it's a winner on all counts, Ben. Oh, thank you. Um, oh, thank you. That's great to hear. Truly, uh, on every level, from your cinematography to your editing to the score to your casting to performance, it, this is a winner on every level. And it's got something in there that, speaks to a part of all of us there is something in in each of us that will connect with something in this film and it's That's my hope it's not often that you find that so now since we're almost out of time here i've got to ask you where are we still on the festival circuit do we have distribution um what where are we now with. I wish I had more concrete <laughs> answers for you. We are working on it. We are working on getting the distribution. We are in conversations with a couple of places that might be good homes for it. We have uh, Endeavor Content is repping the film. Uh, we are not. We are still sort of on the festival circuit, but we're mostly focused on the distribution angle right now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really want this movie to be seen by as many people as possible, and I think if this were... You know, uh, when I was a teenager, I would have said, oh, it would definitely be in movie theaters. And, and, and that would be nice. But it's really about getting it, in, you know, seen by as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. So the, whole, the, the, the frustrating and annoying answer is stay tuned. But we think something will we hope to have news sooner than later. Now, do we have a website that people can check to find out? Oh, you know what? We should. We don't actually have one. I yet couldn't find one. I... That's why I'm asking. I thought, oh my God. No, that's a good question. And I'm thinking, should we put up together a website? I haven't put together a website for a movie in a long, long time. Uh, but it's a, it might not be a bad idea. I think you need so, one for this film. Okay, I think... well, I, I think that's good homework. We should have a website. There should be an online destination. We are, you know, Annie, uh, our, our publicist, who I think um, you spoke with, has been great at getting um, this out there, but I think it's a, a good next step. So I, I have, ha I, I, I love every interview that ends with homework. You know, I mean, when you, when you're pushing for the distribution phase right now and still kind of languishing and lingering in festival land, you, I think that 
it's a perfect time to have a website out there on the film that people can go to with updates that, you know, what's happening or what festivals are coming up where they can find the film or little tidbits, you know, little clips of behind the scenes or something. People love that stuff. I think it would really benefit for this particular film. Well, I think I have some emails to write. Thank you. That's a great idea. You're very welcome. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I love it. I love it. These are very encouraging and fun interviews. I'll oh, take it. <laughs> ben, this has been so wonderful chatting with you. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately we don't because I have a zillion more questions about this film. Uh, but I can't wait for everybody to be able to see it. I can't wait to see what you bring us next. I know you've got a, um, a TV series in development you can't talk about. Um, I can't talk about anything. It's so I dumb. know. <laughs> I know. So now, I'm, see, this is another reason. You need a website for this film. <laughs> you can put little well, sidelines. Sure. Yeah, I don't need a personal website saying Ben is working on a number of projects he can't talk about. He's currently in the writer's room of a show he can't mention <laughs> with the door closed. I have, I have a couple <laughs> friends like that, so I know. So, oh, Ben, this has been a pure joy. We have to do this again. You have an open invitation. Come back anytime. And I want to know what you are up to next. Well, I can't wait to talk about more about that when I'm able to. So thank you so much for having me. This has been a real delight. It's always fun to talk about the movie. And your questions were smart and happy. made me happy to think about it. So thank you again. Oh, good. Well, thank you, Ben. And I'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. And that was Ben Epstein, writer, director of Who Are You People? And I have to say it that way just because I have to say it that way. Who are you people? So be on the lookout for Who Are You People? And as I get more information from Ben about this series he's working on right now, we'll be able to bring you that hopefully shortly down the road. But in the meantime... Last Exit Space, Discovery Plus, right now, Rudolph Herzog's movie. And it's worth watching, even if you don't like space or the idea of colonization or anything like that. It's worth watching the film just to hear Rudolph's dad, Werner Herzog, narrate the film. Do voiceover. Because Werner has the greatest voice in the world. So... That is all the time we have. We'll be back next week. We've got two great filmmakers who are going to talk the spine of the night. Uh, And until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 